Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? Good? All right. It's three people over here doing really good. Glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, we're continuing to work through 1 Samuel. Been working through this for a while. If you weren't here last week, did a, a really, really interesting chapter, chapter 16. I think they've all been interesting. If you've been here, I, I hope you've enjoyed it. It's. I think the the Old Testament gets a bad rap sometimes, but um, I think it's pretty exciting, quite frankly. And in chapter 16, we see something really interesting. If you haven't been here, we've been following really two main characters, and we're about to be introduced to, to a third. We've kind of been introduced, but, but from here on out, we're going to be talking a lot about David, uh, especially one of the most famous stories, chapter 17. We're going to do half of it today, uh, but we're going to be primarily focusing on David. But we've been talking about Samuel who is a prophet, and he's kind of the prophet of Israel. We, we have Saul, who is the first king of Israel, and we've been seeing the last couple of months, Saul is not a good leader. He's not a good king. He's been very disobedient, very arrogant. He has just blatantly not followed what God has told him to do. And in chapter 16, uh, he kind of had his last shot. And we see in chapter 16 two things that are pretty interesting and take a little bit of study to, to kind of understand what's going on. And you can go back and watch that if you weren't here last week. The first thing we see is interesting is that the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. It departs from Saul. It says that. That's interesting. The second thing that I think is even more interesting than that is it says in chapter 16 that God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. And so that's there. So we have to grapple with it. We have to talk about it. We have to study a little bit. And in that conversation last weekend, we talked a lot about a lot about spiritual things, and sometimes people get weirded out when you talk spiritual things in church, which is odd. But, but anyways, um, we talked a lot about spiritual things, demonic influence, demonic uh, oppression, possession. But most importantly, we talked about the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how we need to be full of the Holy Spirit, not just to be saved and possess the Spirit, but, but to be overflowing with it and how important that is. Talked about that last week. This week, and we're going to cut it in half because I just didn't want to rush through this story. It's just too good. Maybe the most famous story in the Bible besides the, 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 the crucifixion of Christ is probably the, the fight between David and Goliath, and that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit this week. We're going to do half of it and do the next half last week. Again, I just didn't want to blow through this. It's just too interesting. And, and even if you're not a Christian, if you're in here and you've never stepped foot in a church before, you're probably at least, you know, have a rudimentary understanding of the story of David and Goliath. We use it as kind of a, a colloquialism nowadays. Well, you know, I got this Goliath at work. That means, you know, like an awful boss or something. Or, you know, I feel like I'm the underdog. I'm the David in this situation. And we just talk about this. And it's become kind of a, a part of the fabric of, of Western, Western culture, the story of David and Goliath. But we're going to talk about the actual historical account of a young man named David who was recently been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. He's not king yet. He's still pretty young, um, but we're going to get into this battle with uh, him and Goliath. And what we're going to talk about today is we're going to take that out, right? You know, millions of, of, of pastors and books and stuff have done this in the last, you know, uh, 4,000 years or so, a little bit, you know, a little bit less than that, about 3,000 years, have taken out this metaphor from this uh, about giants, that we all face Goliaths, if you will. And so our conversation today is gonna to be how do we respond to adversity? How do we respond to, to, to giants in our life, Goliaths, things that threaten us and threaten the things around us? How do we deal with that? How do we respond to that, okay? Fun fact, that's an actual picture of uh, where the battle between David and Goliath took place. That is the Valley of Elah, which is kinda of interesting, right? Got a couple of oohs and ahs out there, it's good. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything I'm going to say will be in there. Everything will be on the screen behind me. If you have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. You got everything right there. And if you have one of these old school things, this is called a book. This one's called the Bible. Um, if you have one of these, we're in the Old Testament, and we're in the ninth book of the Old Testament, 17th chapter, and we're going to do about half of it. Okay? All right? Good to see you this morning. I mean that with all sincerity. It's good to see full church. It's good especially as crazy and as broken as the world is. So um, let me pray. We'll dive into this and um, see where we go this morning, all right? Father God, we love you. <sighs> Lord, I thank you so much for everyone in this room. I, I, with all sincerity, God, I thank you, Lord, that, that people made it a point to be 
in church today, God, to, to hear the word, to worship, to take communion, to, to be with other believers. I pray, Lord, that you bless this church. Keep your hand on this church, God. We don't just pray for our church, though, Father. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses, the churches in those cities. And we just pray that as we study a very famous story today, God, that we can pull from it the life lessons that we need to take and that we can lean more on you, that our relationship with you can get stronger. And Lord, we, we pray that we honor you with how we study today, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Keep your hand on us, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to read a little bit. We'll break it into three parts, okay? I'll read a little bit, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Soko in Judah and camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damum. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine in between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was swung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked him, am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we'll be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and they were terrified. All right. So we're not sure how much time has passed between chapter 16 and chapter 17. It appears that probably a couple of years maybe have passed between that time. Uh, we, we, many theologians believe that because they, they think David is about 20 years old when this takes place. I don't know if anyone else is like this, but I try to, you know, you try to visualize these things in your head. So think of a young man who's about 20 years old. So from this point in the Bible, all the way through the end of 1 Samuel, basically what we're going to be focusing on is a contrast, a contrast of Saul and his disobedience and bad leadership, and then David and his faithfulness and his good leadership. So the Philistines come back into the picture. They should have been killed a long time ago, but they come back into the picture. They threaten peace, and David is going to be introduced into this situation. Good old train. So chapter 14 tells us, if you haven't been here, chapter 14, there's a very odd paragraph at the end of that chapter where it gives kind of a summary of Saul's life. And in that summary, it mentions that Saul was a pretty fantastic military leader. This guy had a significant amount of victories when it came to battles with adversaries. But in this particular situation, the circumstances are very odd, and the, the Israeli army is paralyzed. They are completely immobilized by the Philistines this time. So as the Philistines were on one hill... The Israelites were on another hill. There was a valley where it says a ravine in between them. And they would stand out there. And for 40 days, we'll get to that here in a second, Goliath would walk out, big old guy, nine foot nine. That's a pretty good size individual. Would come out of the Philistine camp. He would threaten the Jews. And it says that he left them absolutely terrified. Now, if you're in here today and maybe you're skeptical about this story, how could a guy possibly nine, be, be nine foot nine? Doesn't, you know, it seems like maybe it's embellished. Maybe these Christians just kind of exaggerate these things. Well, it's interesting. Oddly enough, uh, in the last century, they found a couple of pieces of, of archaeological evidence uh, that give a lot of validity to this story. The first one is 
there's a document not written by the Jews, but written by the Egyptians from about 200 years before when David and Goliath took place. And it mentions in detail warriors in the Canaanite area. They were anywhere from seven foot to nine foot tall. The Egyptians uh, documented this. We've also found in the last century two skeletons in the East Bank that they were female skeletons. So these are women who tend to be a little bit shorter than men, but these skeletons were over seven foot tall. And so there is archeological evidence that there were these extremely large people, big people, tall people in the East Bank area uh, during this time. So it gives some validity to this story. So it was Goliath's size that was intimidating. You know, if a nine foot nine guy walks out and wants to fight you, that's a little scary. But even more than that, it was what Goliath had on. He had on the most impressive, if you will, technologically advanced weaponry that they had at this time. Um, metal during this time was actually very scarce. If you go back a couple of chapters, it even says this in 1 Samuel, that, that metal was so scarce that hardly any of the Jewish army uh, soldiers had adequate weaponry. Only Saul and Jonathan, his son, had adequate weaponry. Not only that, metallurgy, the, the, the use of making metal objects and doing things with metal, was monopolized by the Philistines. So they just had much better stuff. So Goliath not only walks out there and he's huge, he walks out there decked out, bronze helmet, bronze armor, bronze shin guards. He has an iron javelin between his shoulder blades, one that you could reach back and grab. And then he had a spear that was so large, the tip of it weighed 15 pounds. And then he also had a shield bearer. And I don't know why I find that comical. You got some little guy running around with his shield. He's got a sidekick, you know, he's even got that. So a pretty intimidating. And so what had happened is Saul, who was a, a pretty talented military strategist, the Bible says, uh, Saul meets his match. And, and the truth is this, we will all, all of us in this room, will eventually have a collision with a giant that looks unbeatable, insurmountable. Where Saul made a mistake is when he came up against a giant, he had made the mistake, remember this, long before he encountered the giant. But when Saul encountered the giant, he didn't depend on God to bring him through, the God of impossibilities. He relied on himself, as we will, as we will see. So here's the thing. All of you in this room have some kind of skill, some kind of talent, you have something you're good at, and that will take you only so far. It will take you to a certain extent, but you will eventually reach a point to where your skills and abilities, which are from God anyways, will only take you so far. It is in those places, and I would even say actually before you reach those places, that we must be faithful and we must trust in God because all of life's battles ultimately belong to him. Amen. Thank you. And so all of life's battles eventually or inevitably belong to God and we must trust him when we get into those situations. We also learn from giants, Goliath, that there's provocation. These obstacles in our life try to provoke. Now in, in the ancient Near East where this takes place, there are many accounts of where battles would be fought, not between whole armies, but they would send their best soldiers into like this area, into a, a valley. They would duke it out. They would fight it out to the death. And whoever won, the other army would submit to them. They would surrender to them. The reason they would do that was to, scare all the, uh, uh, to spare all the casualties. They didn't want all the death. So Goliath steps out there, says, hey, we're the Philistines, you're the Jews, you know, I'm gonna fight, won't you send someone out to fight me? And it said that he would defy the armies of Israel. The word defy there literally means to heap shame, to condescend. If there's any other honest people in this room beside me, I don't know if anyone else will admit, that's kind of my trigger point. If I feel, well, anyone, anyone? Thank you, there's one over here. There's a couple of honest people in the room. So I'm one of those people where I'm, I'm a pretty calm, like, like chill person for the most part until you start talking to me like I'm stupid, right? Or, 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 or condescending me or ridiculing me. And, and I have to be careful because that can get me pretty riled up. And there will, there will always be people who will do that. You guys see this in our day and age, we don't, have, we don't have intelligent conversation. We see who can like scream at the other person more. That's how, 
I shouldn't say this. This is how you know that you're intellectually better off than other people. If they don't actually bring facts in, in, in conversation, they just call you names, right? But this is the way the world works now. And if we're not careful, we can be sucked into that condescension and that ridicule. And we can respond in a sinful manner or we can respond in a, in a fearful manner and back off from them. And we're not supposed to respond in either one of those things. We cannot let lies and provocation suck us in to acting in a way that we shouldn't act as Christians, okay? So we have to be careful with that. But that's what Goliath was trying to do. And it was working. Saul, who was the king, was terrified. It's not a good sign when, you're, when your leader is scared to death, right? And so it says that Saul was scared, he was terrified. And if your leader, your king, and if you don't remember, guys, it says earlier on in Samuel that Saul was a head taller than everyone else. He was a big dude. And if Saul is scared and paralyzed by fear, of course that's gonna trickle down to everyone else. Because when leadership refuses to act and lead in a godly way, chaos ensues. Carelessness ensues. Confusion ensues. Fear ensues. And I know it's easy for us to point fingers, right? Oh, good thing I'm not the president. Good thing I'm not the leader of this, you know, Fortune 500 company. We point all these fingers and we blame everyone else. Yeah, it's because of bad leadership. But here's the thing. All of us in this room will have some level of leadership and authority that God gives to us. If you're a parent, bingo, man. That's the most important authority God can ever give you. And if we don't lead in a godly manner, it doesn't just affect us, it affects the ones who are looking at us. But if we live in a godly manner, if we're obedient to the Lord, if we're obedient to the word of God, we can walk in confidence, not in us, but in the Holy Spirit that resides in us. And we have the ability to lead well. Why? Because God gives us wisdom and discernment and knowledge and courage and faith, and we have these things. Those are just gifts. We also have the fruit Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. So when we walk in obedience to God, we can walk in confidence. We can lead well, and it blesses the people around us. That's not a real picture of David. They didn't have cameras back then. <laughs> now, David was the son of an Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were uh, Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shammah, the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his, his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning. He left the flock with someone to keep it loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath the Philistine from Gath came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him terrified. It's now the second time that it has mentioned that. So from here on out, the, 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 the real focus of 1 Samuel is going to be David. We're told that David is the youngest of eight sons, his oldest brothers went off to fight with Saul in the war, but David was, would go back and forth 
He would tend his father's sheep. He would take care of them. He would run and bring his, his brothers their daily supplies. He'd basically bring them lunch every day, essentially. He would, he would deliver food to them, make sure that they're okay. Hey, dad wants to know if you're okay. All right, I gotta go back and deal with the sheep. And so more than likely, and we're gonna see this here in a minute, more than likely, David was kind of the overlooked little brother. He was the youngest of, of, of eight boys. His brothers were probably much older than him. His dad was older at this time. He was the one that wasn't at war. He was like writing songs while he was hanging out with the sheep in the field. So maybe the other brothers didn't think he was much of a man and they kind of discounted him and they didn't think much about him, okay? But that was David's role. He was just running back and forth. So every day and night for 40 days, 40 days they would do this, they would line up in battle formation, the Jews on one side, the Philistines on the other, and Goliath would come out in the center. Hey, what's up? He'd talk a bunch of smack, get everyone riled up, scare him to death, right? And so one day, as David shows up, he is, he is giving his brothers all their daily provisions. He's talking to them. Hey, I just need to get a report for dad. And, and as he's doing this, as he's talking to his brothers, he hears someone yelling in the valley. He looks over, and for the first time, David sees and hears the giant, right? And he's sitting there on the front of the battle line, and he's looking at this guy taunting his king, taunting his, his, his fellow countrymen, and taunting his God. And it says that when the men would hear Goliath, we already know this, they would get terrified. So here's, here's this, is, this is where it gets to, it's fun. So David not only heard Goliath and was like, what's up with this guy? He then turned around to the soldiers and they were not doing anything. They were terrified. And he's sitting there going, what is up with this? This is not the way we are to act. And this brings up something that I, I bring up a lot. And I don't bring it up to, to, to make you feel bad. I don't bring it up to pick on you if you struggle with fear and anxiety. I don't bring this up to, to make me sound heroic. I'm not perfect or any of that. But the most repeated command in the entire word of God is to not be afraid. It is not how Christians are designed to live. We are not some 370 times in the Bible, it says to not be afraid. Well, how can we not be afraid, Corey? Have you not looked at the stock market? Have you not looked at the government? Have you not looked at what's going on on the world scale? Listen, if all your money is taken away, if you live obediently to God, one day you'll inherit streets of gold. Hold on. We already know that the government's going to fall, but that's okay because the Bible says that all government rests on the shoulders of Christ. It's okay, right? Well, what if they come and blow us up and kill our families and, and, and saw off our heads and do awful things? Then you will wake up in paradise with your creator. Any, listen, any way you slice it, all of this is temporary, but your soul is eternally secure with God if you live in a relationship with him. This is why Paul writes, no one can snatch you out of his hand, guys. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I know that's easy to say when you see the world, you know, from up here when we're in this isolated, close environment with like-minded people, and then we gotta go back out into a world that is falling apart at the seams. But the Bible tells us it's going to fall apart at the seams. Like Jesus said, it's like labor pains. If you talk to any woman who's about to give birth, the closer and closer that child comes out, she's like, man, this just keeps getting better and better and better. <laughs> of course not. It hurts, right? Not that I know from experience, but I watched my wife do it twice. And so we know all this. We are not designed to live in fear. So David was ticked. He was mad because he's like, wait a second, this guy is talking bad about God. And you're just standing there and it doesn't bother you. And you're afraid of this giant. And so in David's mind, he says, someone has to do something about this. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. You guys are like, I'll fight a giant for no taxes. <laughs> 
David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's older brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with David. Why did you come down here, he asked. Why did you leave those few sheep with, uh, who did you leave those, those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know you're arrogant and you have an evil heart. You came down here just to see the battle. What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. (laughs) So I said this earlier, if there was anyone in Israel who was most suited to fight physically Goliath, it was Saul. Earlier on in 1 Samuel, it says that Saul was a whole head taller than any other man in Israel. So Saul was a big dude. Saul might've been six foot five, six foot six. He was a tall dude, a big strapping young man, right? A little bit older at this time, but when we first hear of him, it said that his, his physique was impressive. So if anyone should have physically stood up to Goliath, it should have been Saul. But like many people in positions of power, instead of being brave, they did the cowardly thing and they said, well, I'll just get someone else to fight this battle for me. So he put the word out, hey, anyone who goes and fights Goliath and kills him, I'll give him a lot of money, I'll give him my daughter's hand in marriage and they'll never have to pay taxes again. And so everyone heard about this, right? What a great offer, right? So they heard about the problem. They know what the problem is. They know what the reward for, for, for finding a solution to the problem is. Everyone talked about it, but no one did a thing about it. That's what Facebook is for, right? <laughs> Talk about how bad everything is, but we don't do anything about it. You guys know that bumper stickers don't change the world, right? Seriously, like, like if you're in love with the whales, I like whales, I've seen whales before, I think they're cool. But if I just put a save the whale thing on my, on my car, that does nothing for whales, nothing. Now, maybe if I send some money to a nonprofit that works to preserve whales in a coastal city, that, that'll probably do something to help whales. If I, if I just put the bumper sticker on there and say, man, I'm really passionate about whales, but I've never given any of my time. Maybe if you're really passionate, again, move to one of those coastal areas, volunteer your time in a nonprofit and do something to actually save the whales. It's the same thing with the problems in our society. Just by posting that there is a problem with the world on your Facebook does nothing. It does nothing to solve that problem. To look and say, hey, look, there's a giant over there. Someone gonna do something about the giant? There he is. We have to step up to the plate and have a desire to want to fix the problem. So if we as Christians step back and go, man, the family is falling apart. How's your family? You doing okay with that? You leading your kids in the way of Christ? You praying with them every single night? You pouring into your spouse? You pouring into your husband, into your wife? Is it starting at home? Because if we all focused on that, it would eventually trickle out. Maybe if you see all the homelessness in this town, maybe give to your local church, give to a nonprofit. Let's work on it. Let's do something about it. Anyone can point and go, there's something wrong. It takes someone of action, right? And of heart to say, I'm gonna step up to the giant. I'm gonna take a stand. I'm gonna do something about it. It does no good if we just talk about how bad the world sucks. We have to do something about it. We have to take a stand. We have to step up to the plate. And so David responds with with incredulity. That'll give you something to do. You can Google that while I talk for a second. (laughs) David responded with shock. There's a context clue. Because the king would even offer such a reward. Man, this guy's talking smack about us and our God. No one will do anything about it, not even our leader. And he was mad. David's like, are we just gonna sit back and let this man threaten our people, threaten our, 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 our faith and dishonor our God? And listen, it should upset us. 
when people dishonor God, whenever people dishonor the people of God. The question though is, is how should we respond to that? Well, Corey, I, I respond to it by fighting, right? I respond to it by arguing. I respond to it with verbal attacks. And that's not the way we're supposed to do it. Well, well, Corey, you just said, we know how this story goes. There's this threat to God's honor and God's people. So David picks up stones, kills that, spoiler alert, kills that giant, cuts his head off. That's what we gotta do. Well, that's, that's a very isolated event. Now, listen, here's the thing. You don't need my permission, but I'll go ahead and give it to you. If there is a, 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 a big man who is standing at the foot of your door threatening to hurt your wife and children, by all means, you do whatever you have to do to stop him. Do whatever you have to do to stop him because your wife and kids are innocent, right? Whatever we have to do to protect innocent people, we, we, we gotta do what we have to do. That is not the majority of our situations though. We're talking about people who get on social media or TV or say hateful things about Christ, about Christians. They say lies, they say destructive things. And we sit back and we try to fight them with the same vitriol that they're using against us. And the Bible says not to do that. It says not to return evil for evil. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do what Jesus did. We're supposed to love them. No one likes that response. No, seriously, no one likes that. We would rather fight. We would rather go toe to toe. Well, they disrespected me. I'm gonna disrespect them. It's not biblical. They were mean to me, so I'm gonna be mean to them. Not biblical. Jesus said, pray for those that persecute you. Love your enemies. Combat the, 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 the lies of the world with the truth. Matthew 5, Ephesians 4. This is, we do not fight the way the world fights. We talked about this last week. We fight not against flesh and blood. We fight through prayer. We fight through love. We fight through truth. That's what we are called to do with the giants of our society. And so David was consumed by the situation. He was like hot, consumed by the situation. Why? because he was a young man consumed with, with protecting God's honor. He was zealous of the honor of God. And he says, who's gonna do something about this thing? Who's gonna do something about this giant? Who's going to remove this disgrace that defies, that, again, that, 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 that means to, to, to heap shame on? Who's going to do something about this one that keeps ridiculing the people of God in God? And he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine that has nothing to do with biology. That's actually a reference to, to his spiritual nature. The Jews were circumcised because that was a physical representation of a covenant they had made with God. And so by him saying that's an uncircumcised Philistine, he was saying this is someone that does not honor God. He does not have a relationship with God. So David's brother hears all this, right? His oldest brother hears all this. And, and he, he kind of attacks David. David, you're so arrogant. David, you're so evil. You're so selfish. You just wanted to come down here and see the battle and see the, the, see the fighting that was taking place. And David's like, what are you talking about? Do you know where that comes from? I think, I personally think, David's oldest brother was projecting onto David his own guilt of not stepping up to the giant himself. You know, we learn from that. There are a lot of people who will be critical of you. There are a lot of people who, who, who are too afraid to attack the giants of society so they will demean you. There are a lot of people who are afraid to lead good marriages and be financially responsible and, and honor their church and honor their family and, and honor their marriage. They're too, so they'll wanna tear you down. They wanna bring you down to their level. But we cannot let those people hold us back from what God wants us to do. Here's the thing. If we claim to be Christians in this place, we are to live distinctively different than the ideology of the world. Distinctively different. And when we live distinctively different from the ideology of the world, that doesn't mean we think we're better than anyone else, but we are living by the principles of this book, not by the principles of culture. And when we live by the principles of this book versus the principles of culture, there will always be ridicule. There will always be criticism. There will always be condescension. These things will happen. And we shouldn't be shocked by that. I'm shocked that so many Christians are shocked by it. Because Jesus said, don't be surprised when they hate you. You guys know this verse, right? Because they hated me first, Jesus said. Don't be surprised when they don't like you because they didn't like me. Jesus also said, in this world, there will be trouble. 
It's not, there might be, there will be trouble. But Jesus says, take heart, I've already overcome. I'm already victorious, just stick with me. We're going to receive backlash for our faith, but we just have to stick with God through it and we'll be okay. So David believed someone's gotta go address this giant. And if you guys won't do it, I'll, I'll go stand in the gap for you. I will fight for the honor of God. I will fight for the honor of my people. And David had complete confidence that God would deliver him from his enemy, regardless of how big his enemy looked, regardless of the words coming out of his enemy's mouth. He knew that God was bigger. David was not afraid of a nine foot nine creation because David walked with the creator. And Christians cannot cower, listen to me, before the challenges of our time. What that means is Christians cannot afford to live idly. There's too many professing Christians who, who they're just concerned about their own soul. Well, I'm saved, I'm good. Okay, but your neighbor may not be. What about your children? What about your extended family? What about the people around you? See, one of the big problems about American culture is we are an individualistic society. Now, some of that is good. The individual is important and valued. I get that. But we have taken it so far, because that's what we do in the United States. We can't be balanced. Our individualistic society has made the individual gods. We're gods. And it's all about me. It's just my world. This is a movie about me. You're all, you know, you're all like minor characters in my movie. That's why we walk around like listening to our own soundtrack, ignoring people. We're all about ourselves, right? And the problem with that is, is it's not Christ-like. It's not just about us. It's not just about like us getting saved and avoiding hell. We are to advance the kingdom of God. And when we sit idly by, and we let half-truths and lies take root in the people around us. We are, we are passively sitting by watching the world burn around us. And that's not how we're supposed to be. It's not how we're supposed to be. So, you know what's interesting at this point? We're, we're cutting it in half, right? We cut off right in the middle. What's interesting about the story of David and Goliath up to the point that we covered today, look at this. Goliath is not David's personal problem yet, and vice versa. Goliath doesn't even know who David is. It didn't personally, man, I hope you guys hear this. It didn't personally affect David one way or the other if Goliath lived or died. It wasn't a personal thing at this point. But it did, Goliath did pose a threat to David's people. It did pose a threat to his society. So we have a lot of issues today, guys. There's a lot of societal Goliaths in the Western world, in the United States. And a lot of those things may not affect your home. But I'm gonna promise you something. If you, if you find yourself saying things like, well, they do that out there on the West Coast or the East Coast, or these things happen there and these things happen way out there, but not in my home. Listen, if we ignore the cancer long enough, the cancer spreads to all of the body. And eventually those problems are going to be at your front door. Well, we don't talk about those things because it doesn't affect my family. Man, you need, you need to take your head out of the sand. Those things are on our front door already, I would make the argument. But what we say is, well, if it doesn't, if it doesn't directly affect, homelessness doesn't directly affect me. But when I drive and take my kids to school every morning, I see, I see people literally sleeping on our square outside, that should bother us. Those are humans, you guys know that, right? Humans, well, they've made dumb decisions. You've made dumb decisions. It should bother us. And we think that these, some, that these problems are so far away. Well, they don't personally touch me, but eventually they will. And you know what, here's the problem with that statement. It's not all about us. It should not be about all, all about us. We have to want to take a stand against these problems that affect our people. And Goliaths tend to be provocative. What do I mean by that? There are sometimes giants, situations and individuals who oppose those walking in a relationship with God. And what they try to do is they try to, they try to insult you and, and work. We're, we're a society that worships emotion. Emotion is more important than truth in our society. 
So if someone can scream and yell and insult you and tear you down and it, and it provoke a sinful response, they win. If it provokes a response of fear to where we cower away, they win. Those giants win. So here's the thing, guys. Listen, if you're a Christian in here, listen to me. If you're walking in a relationship with Jesus, you should feel security and peace because God is a God of security. He is the Prince of Peace. So even if people are telling lies about you, even if people are insulting you publicly, even if these things are taking place, if we are connected to God, we should feel security in him and know that those lies will ultimately fall apart, that they are from hell. You know what I've learned in my 44 years in pastoring a really big church for the last 15 years? I've learned that ultimately the truth always bubbles up to the surface. It always wins. And some of you are getting sucked in to, to, to vain, the Bible calls them vain babblings, pointless arguments. You're getting sucked into these lies and it's getting you to act sinful. It's getting you to respond in a way you shouldn't respond or it's making you afraid. And that's not the way that we are to respond. So Goliath may provoke us through insults. Goliath may also provoke us through temptation. Some of us in this room face a whole different kind of giant. We face a giant that, that from a distance looks very attractive, very sexy, right? Very alluring, very tempting. Materialism and greed and lust and sex and affirmation. And it looks really good, right? Until you become addicted to it, until you find out that it's unfulfilling. And this is why Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God to protect our minds, to protect our hearts, because some giants get us through attraction, get us through allurement and temptation. So when it comes to giants, we cannot afford to just sit still. Every Christian knows Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We hide behind it, right? Oh, there's nothing we can do, Corey. There's no work we can do. We are saved by grace through faith. You know what's funny about Ephesians chapter two? There's a 10th verse. You know what it says after eight and nine? You're saved by, faith, uh, by grace through faith for good works. To do something, not to just sit idly by and be like, oh, Jesus, you're coming back soon, right? No, no, no. We are saved by grace through faith to get to work. This is why James, the, the literal brother of Christ, said faith without works is dead. It's not worth anything. God's people are not designed to just sit idly by. There is no neutral. There is no pause. There is no cruise control. We're either gravitating towards Christ and the things of Christ and advancing the kingdom of Christ or we're gravitating away. And there are too many Christians who are just coasting. And I could make the argument that that's not Christianity at all. There is no fence to stand on. We're either in or we're out. And it's not just about us building our personal relationship with God. My Lord, I hope you have a personal relationship with God. We're to have a personal relationship with God. But going back to this argument of individualism versus collectivism, I'm not trying to give you like a, a, a lesson on society today, but there should be something in the Christian that doesn't wanna be a good person just so we could avoid hell, but we wanna be a good person in the hopes that someone else will experience the light, that we will experience, that, that's why Jesus calls us in Matthew 5, the salt and light of the world that other people will be positively affected by the spirit that should be overflowing out of us. And that we advance his kingdom through, through love, that we advance his kingdom through truth, that we care about others. It's like in the book of Genesis, when, when, when Cain kills Abel and God goes, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain goes, what am I, my brother's keeper? Yes, yes. You are your brother's keeper. Absolutely. That was the rhetorical response that should have been given. And so we should care and we cannot afford to sit idly by. And so David understood he was there to stand in the gap. David's not the only person that talks about standing in the gap. I love Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah is talking to God and God says, I look to send someone to stand in the gap for me, but I could find no one. And Isaiah goes, send me, I'll go. How do we do that? We stand in the gap for others through prayer. 
That means you need to be praying for Christians. That means that you need to be praying for non-Christians. That means that you need to even be praying for those that hate your guts. You need to be praying, (laughs) it sounds weird. There may be giants that you need to be praying for. There may be obstacles that you need to be praying for. We also stand in the gap by lovingly sharing the truth of this book and living out this truth. Why? Because it is only through the truth that people are set free. The big thing right now, even in churches, and a lot of Christians say this, well, I know the truth, but I don't want to offend people. You know, that's really selfishness. I've said this before. The reason why people don't want to offend someone else is because ultimately they don't want to be disliked. It's really about them. Listen, I, I, I love you. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to sound heroic. Even if I've never met you in this room, I love you. That's, that's why I do this with my life. God has called me to do this because and he's putting a love in my heart for people. I love you. And I love you so much that I am willing to take the risk of hurting your feelings in the hope that a seed of truth will be planted in your heart. And, and all of us in this room, we, we need to love people enough to tell them the truth because the truth is the only thing that will liberate them. It was the only thing that will save them is the ultimate expression of love to tell people the truth, tell them the truth. So the question is, how do we respond to these Goliaths in our life? Listen, David could confidently approach a giant. David could confidently walk up to a giant. Why? Because he had a relationship with God, proactive. Do you hear me? David didn't wait until he saw a giant and was like, oh, I better get right with God. He was already right with God. And when he was all right with God, living the way he should with God, he had no intimidation from the giants in his life. Why? Because he knew the character of God. He knew the nature of God. He knew that God wants what's best for his children. And so he walked up to the giant with no fear. What we learn is this though, if we do not have a relationship with God, you should be afraid of the giants because they're gonna win. If we lack intimacy with God, adversity is going to rise up in your life and it's going to beat you. If we lack intimacy with God. On the flip side of that, if we have a relationship with God, you have nothing to be afraid of. I don't care how big the giant looks. So we have to ask ourselves, are we equipped to face the giants? whatever that giant is. There's going to be obstacles in life. There's going to be trials in life. The question is, are we ready? And the only way to be ready is to have an intimate relationship with Christ. Are we ready for the temptations? Are we ready for the allurement of the world, the lies of the world? The world right now is selling you this lie of freedom all the time. If you just have this, this, this completely unrestrained life, Do whatever you want, create your own truth, create your own reality, have sex with whoever you 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 want to, free drugs, free, free everything, just let everything go. They sell you this lie of freedom. And it is ironic to me that we are the most depressed, addicted, divorced, violent, suicidal people that have ever existed on planet Earth. But unless we are connected to God, we don't recognize the lie. We don't even recognize that there's a giant in front of us because our vision is convoluted. Our ears are convoluted. How will we respond to Goliaths? Will we respond to how the world responds? The Bible says we are not to return evil for evil. Well, they disrespected me. Then keep respecting them. Pray for them. Love them. Will we be paralyzed by fear? Will we be confused? You know, the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. Confusion is not of God. He is a God of order. Will we be plagued by indecisiveness? Or will we go to the Lord in prayer? Listen, not when a giant comes up. Listen to me. But before the giant comes up, will we go to the Lord in prayer before some awful thing happens in our life? Will we have a connection with God before? Will we live a life of obedience before? And when we do, that results in confidence. Why? 
because we step into that battle with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, fruit of the Spirit. We walk into that battle with the giant, with wisdom, discernment, knowledge, courageous faith. Those are some gifts of the Spirit that we walk into that battle equipped and we can show love and we can teach the truth and we can live out the truth and we don't have to be afraid, but we don't have to be afraid of giants. But the question is, what are we doing today? Because we know the giants are coming. They're already out there, but there's more coming. In this life, in this world, there will be trouble, but take heart only if we know that he has conquered the world and that if he is on our side, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and um, maybe you do not have a relationship with God, uh, maybe you're new to this, maybe you're starting this journey, maybe you have questions. Up here on my right, your left is Pastor Mike. He would love to talk with you, okay? If you have any questions, we're not offended by questions, we're not intimidated by it, we'd love to talk with you. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, uh, maybe you have some giants and maybe you, you, shouldn't go, you, you shouldn't go through that fight alone. Let someone pray with you. We also have communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, there's communion. And then on the majority of these pillars in the room, there's communion, bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to take that as long as they have asked God to forgive them of their sin. Today, we're gonna do a little bit different. If you, if you take communion, you go get it and go back to your seat. And uh, Pastor Greg's just gonna walk us through communion today, do it a little bit different, okay? Let me pray for you though. Father God, we love you. Lord, you see the obstacles in our life, God. You see the obstacles in our community and in our society. Father, I pray, Lord, that you fill us up with your spirit. I pray, God, that we don't live in fear of the obstacles in life, God, but that, that we lean on you. Lord, we love you. God, I don't know what everyone in this room is going through, but, but inevitably someone's going to go through something big. They're gonna face something big. And I just pray that in that time, they lean into you, God, and trust you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray that you keep your hand on us, God, and keep us safe till we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.